episode of Modern Practice, we'll continue our discussion about the care category of chronic fatigue and abilities and why we need to get a handle on it. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality of Vision and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is Rachel MacRN, Consulting Director in Clinical Documentation Improvement at Vision. Rachel, welcome back. Thank you, Dr. Tom. So in the last episode, you went over several conditions included in the variable chronic fatigue and debilities. So what are some of the other conditions that are part of the Vizient variables? Yeah, of course, Tom. So on the last episode, I hit the what I call the high notes of this variable where we talked about the medical conditions that'll capture the variable if they're present on admission. These next few, these other conditions are also part of the variable, but a little bit different. They are age-related physical debility, limitation of activities due to disability, bed confinement status, and other reduced mobility. How vague can you be? So I'll start with bed confinement status. I'll start with the easiest one. Before you go into the answer, guys, if I may emphasize among my clinicians listening, this is key because it's actually not only going to contribute to your expected mortality, but also contribute significantly into your expected length of stay. So your clinical truth really comes out. Absolutely, Tom. And these, I hate to say they're easy to document, They're so easy to document that they get overlooked is basically uh, what happens. So easiest one is bed confinement status. We recommend documenting this condition or I've never seen anybody have to query for this condition. It's either documented or it's not. This is when a patient is truly most of the day confined to their bed. These patients typically need assistance or maybe they can't even get to a bedside commode. So they require things like toileting in bed or bed baths or having lifts in their home. These are patients that stand apart from wheelchair-confined patients. Wheelchair-confined patients can typically participate in things like standing and turning, either with assistance or tools, things like that, to get from point A to point B. Patients who meet criteria for bed confinement typically cannot do that. The other three conditions, limitation of activities due to disability, other reduced mobility, and age-related physical debility, These are a little tougher to diagnose. This is likely one of a clinical opinion related to some type of physical assessment or just how you see the patient interact with family members, how they are in bed, how they walk down the hallway, if they can walk down the hallway, etc. Individuals with mobility impairments may experience a loss of motor or fine motor skills. They may have a limited range of motion. They may be reluctant to attempt any movement because they're terrified of falling, they're terrified of getting hurt, etc. Reduction in mobility can range from kind of low-level impairment to significant impairment where the individual really requires a high level of support. So as a provider or a physician diagnosing and documenting these conditions for these patients, whether in the inpatient space or the outpatient space, I think there's a couple of assessment questions to ask yourself. One, do they require a mobility aid, a cane, a crutch, a walker, rolling walker, a scooter, I think if anyone requires these conditions to move, this should be kind of a captain obvious, a reduced mobility diagnosis. That's not normal. And also, Dr. Tom, I think this has come up on a couple of podcasts before. This is not part of the normal aging process, right? Unless you're 95 years old or something like that. It is not normal to be 68 and require a cane, right? So even if that's the bare bones minimum of you getting around, I think that's a reduced mobility. The next question I think you should ask yourself during assessment is, does their reduced mobility impact their daily life? So for instance, have they tripped and fallen at home when moving without their mobility aid, right? They're recommended to use it 24-7. They forget it. They leave it around. They try and go from the couch to the table and boom, they fall and break their hip, 
right? To me, that is definitely impacting their daily life and we should capture it. Another question, just kind of piggybacking off the same big question about impacting their daily lives is financial hardship a challenge when it comes to getting the right mobility aid? My husband is actually a case manager at an acute inpatient rehab facility here. And some of the crazy things about what insurance covers, doesn't cover, the nice walker they cover, the terrible walker they cover. Here in Colorado, Medicaid covers everything. You could get everything in your home. Medicare covers little to nothing. So I think those questions are really important to ask yourself when you're thinking about a reduced mobility diagnosis. What is the right diagnosis for your patient based on their current ADL situation? So we already mentioned that these variables in ICD codes have an impact on mortality, have an impact in length of stay, but what about indirect cost? Great question, Tom. I just updated our risk adjustment education for one of our current lovely clients. And in reviewing the top 20 most common variables for both the length of stay and the direct cost calculator, chronic fatigue and abilities is in the top 20 for both. It is 15th in the length of stay calculator, and it is 10th in the direct cost calculator, which when you really start to think about this, this makes sense, right? Patients with conditions like functional quadriplegia, no plastic related fatigue, patients who are confined to their bed. Not only do they ultimately stay longer in the hospital, but they also cost more, right? So it starts to make sense at the end of the day. Apparently there's some updated official coding guidelines related to this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, Tom, there are. And I'm going to talk out of both sides of my neck for the next minute or so. I hope that's okay. So the official coding guidelines last year What they stated was, quote, for social determinants of health, such as information found in category Z55 through Z65, and I'll just dot, dot, dot this, essentially providers who are not the patient's primary provider or physician. We can pick up documentation based on social work, based on case management, based on floor nursing, all that stuff. So that was last year's coding guidelines. That was nice, right? So code Z55 through Z65, we have a little bit more leeway in what we can capture without having to query. The only thing that changed this year is a handful of words, teeny tiny word changement. So now instead of saying information such as those found in category Z55 through Z65, now it says, quote, for social determinants of health classified to chapter 21. And then they follow up with such as information found in Z55 through Z65. The rest of that quote is the same. So it's a little wishy-washy with those updates. I'll be curious to see how much these grow and change in the next few years. I think people are still very hesitant to code these conditions if they are documented by someone that is not the patient's provider because of this vague, weird statement. Also, our coding guidelines tell us that our physicians basically have to document almost everything. So this is just a tough one to get out of. I think the official coding guidelines, again, I think they'll continue to address this. I know CMS wants us (laughs) to report these. They don't know what they don't know about their patients and are completely in the dark about these conditions if they're not documented and then final coded. They've also got some legislation coming up in 2024, 2025, and 2026 where they are going to require social determinants of health to be assessed and be documented. So more to come on that. We don't have all the final rules and things like that, but CMS wants this as well, which is great. You know, Rachel, I know that CMS is trying to make an effort towards documenting social determinants of health, but they're just not making it easy. I hope this is an evolution. 
great comment, Tom. They don't make it easy. And actually, I'll speak and support our providers and physicians and the absolute terror that they have every day of their lives documenting for these patients. The EMRs don't make it easy either. And so I know a lot of our EMRs out there kind of say that they've got these tools and these questionnaires to address social determinants of health. What typically happens in the inpatient space is patients are so acutely sick that is the focus of care, right? You might kind of get lucky if you've got a few chronic conditions uh, documented like chronic systolic heart failure, maybe some asthma, maybe morbid obesity, but social determinants of health, even though they're super important to document, they really kind of fall to that bottom of the barrel. So even though a lot of these codes that we talked about today don't quite fall into that category, they're still in that Z code category where they just kind of get left off because the importance isn't really emphasized. And because the technology doesn't really seem to support what our physicians and providers need currently. That's my opinion. Yeah, it could definitely cause loss of sight. But particularly for the clinical documentation specialist, I would imagine query for this could be quite difficult or even challenging. Absolutely. I'm going to talk about a few things here just with the barriers with capturing this kind of incredible Vizient variable that none of the other methodologies seem to have. So the biggest problem is if you're reviewing a record, and I call this CDI triage, right? You're reviewing a record and you identify four query opportunities. One is for a DRG shift. So it's going to positively financially impact that case in an appropriate way. Patient absolutely meets criteria. So one's a DRG shift. Let's say one of your queries is going to provide an exclusion to remove a patient from a reportable PSI. Let's say the third query opportunity you found is a second MCC. So that will prevent denials down the road, right? Every MCC, every CC we can get in our cases is going to cross fingers, hopefully help prevent denials. And then the fourth one is this chronic fatigue and abilities. Okay, which not very many places are going to send four queries on a case in a day. Most places, most facilities don't want their physicians to revolt (laughs) or not participate in CDI. So they might send two. Maybe they'll send three if it looks like a patient is actively expiring or something like that. So what the barrier there is probably that chronic fatigue and debility diagnosis is it may get left on the table and may not get queried for. So just one of the barriers to keep in mind is CDI triage. Another one is our EMRs and another one is physician education. So let's just talk about it. Most CDI programs are remote or virtual. The way that I'm viewing it now, and again, we travel across the country and do this, there's a few people on site that they'll like tag team, like have two or three or four people come in to make sure they have coverage at least five days a week on site, but there's not 10, 15 CDSs on site anymore. So I think physician education and hearing this message over and over again so that they don't get the same queries over and over and over again. Rachel, I'm also curious, since many of our listeners also live in the ambulatory setting, so for the purposes of HCCs affecting your RAF score, is documenting these chronic conditions of importance? For chronic fatigue and debilities of the all the codes and the diagnoses I mentioned earlier, the only one that is an HCC for those Medicare Advantage plans is functional quadriplegia. The others are not. So here's my take on this, Tom, and I, I'm always hoping to ask and tell providers and physicians to, one, help their future self, and two, help someone else's future self. If you are documenting in the outpatient or the ambulatory space and you can add this to the patient's problem list or add it to a note or something like that, when, and I hate to sound negative, but when this patient gets admitted into the inpatient space, especially if they're going to a hospital that's close by that they can access their EMR from the outpatient space easily, 
you are setting up that inpatient physician to see, oh, look, this patient has some pretty rough debility problems, or they have neoplastic related fatigue or functional quadriplegia, whatever the case may be. So I say, I will shout from the rooftops forever that doing the right thing is either going to benefit you or someone else down the road. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, you can contact Rachel on her email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast at visionink.com. We posted a link in the resource section as well. And please join us for other modern practice podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. And now, I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.